Hey folks, Chris from The Bike Shed here with just a quick announcement before we jump into this episode. ThoughtBot is hiring, and I think you should apply. More specifically, we're hiring for a range of developer positions, including Rails, Elixir, and React Native, across our offices in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, Raleigh, and London. ThoughtBot offers great benefits and time off, and we're truly serious about sustainable pace and making sure folks have time for life outside of work. That said, I think something that makes ThoughtBot stand out is that we focus just as much on making our work pace sustainable as well. You may have heard us talk about it a bit on the show, but at ThoughtBot, we work on client projects four days a week, and then we take Fridays to work on internal projects, learn new technologies, and work on open source. I can't say enough good things about having this time be part of our weekly schedule and making sure we have room for growth as individuals and as a team. Now, if you're concerned that your skills are not quite where they need to be, we also have an apprentice program, which is a paid three-month position with benefits, where you'll be paired with three different ThoughtBot mentors over the three months to help round out your skills and learn the ropes. Many of our apprentices have gone on to join ThoughtBot full-time, so this is a great option if you're newer to the world of being a developer but still interested in possibly working at ThoughtBot. I've personally worked at ThoughtBot for almost six years, and I can't imagine working anywhere else. So if you think you might be interested in working with me or any of the other great ThoughtBotters I've been chatting with for the past few episodes, head on over to thoughtbot.com jobs and let us know. I saw you were playing with Jason B the other day. Yeah. I don't even know what that is. So. Oh, you have I mean, music? I know vaguely what it is, but I've never it's, used it. So. I it's like JSON Wasp, notes. but less aggressive. Wasp? Wasp? Oh, I don't get the wasp. Bees! 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 Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Bike Shed. I'm your host, Chris Toomey, and I'm joined today by Steph Vicari. Hey, Steph. How's it going? Hey, Chris. Doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, thanks for joining us. So uh, what's what's been going on in your world? Let's see. So I've been on a long engagement with mm. a client for about the past nine months, yeah. and that's coming to an end, Yes, which is always exciting and tough just because, especially being such a long engagement, you make a lot of friends, you get invested in the product, and then you have to say goodbye. Mm-hmm. And you end up with a lot of knowledge and things, and you got to try and unwind and untangle and all of those adventures. It's a lot of a lot of things all at once. Yeah, very yeah. much. Yeah, making sure you don't carry over any knowledge that the rest of the team doesn't have. I know you were going through this recently, especially with a particular part of the client application. Mm-hmm. We're just making sure you're not a silo before you leave. Yep. It's complicated, but I think that's one of the things. Derek and I talked about this on an episode a few back, but the idea that like I think that's one of the behaviors that we have ingrained in us because we know we're going to leave from like minute one when we show up at a client. But I think it's something that you know everyone can do, and it's a little bit better when one person doesn't know the code base, that portion of the code base, uniquely well. But sure. But yeah, also you know the human side of things always interesting. The you know relationships that form and all of that. So yeah. Yeah. How are you feeling? Because you're close to the end of that project. As Indeed. Well. Yeah, we're on the same project actually, and so uh, we've got two weeks left. The next two weeks. Yeah, it's been similar. I've been on it for a little less time than you, but still a good probably eight months for me or something like that. And it's always bittersweet at the end. Uh, you know, it's exciting to go onto something new, and yet it's also always interesting to like. I've gained so much knowledge of the domain and the people and the technology and the application. And now I get to move on from that. But I do, you know, I carry parts of that forward with me. Every new application I work on from here will be informed by this one as well as all the ones that came before it. So bittersweet is probably the best word to describe it. I like it. I feel the same way. 
and I have a deeper appreciation for all the data that people are trying to consume <laughs> and use when they're trying to take all the hospital data and essentially play Where's Waldo and finding the patient. Yep, indeed. And there's so many different ways to spell Waldo, and yeah. Are there? No, that's just one of the common <laughs> things that comes up is you can spell names different ways and you can have birthdays in different formats. We really, as a country, I think, should decide on a single way to format dates. And spoiler, it should not be the one that we use. <laughs> I'll support this yeah. for it. But anyway, any technology things, any fun stuff that you've been playing around with lately? Sure. For the client specifically, we were using something that I wasn't familiar with. We were using Aptable to deploy the applications. I'm typically more familiar. We use Heroku for a mm -hmm. lot of the, the smaller applications that we'll start up here at ThoughtBot. Aptable was interesting to work with. They certainly have one of the best customer supports that I've ever worked with, so I enjoyed that greatly. For the rest of the tech stack, what I'm on is a traditional Rails app. I know the one that you're on is Rails and Elm. I was on that project for a little bit in mm -hmm. the beginning before I shifted over to the other team. And unfortunately, I didn't get to do much Elm, but it's still on my radar to do hopefully during like investment Fridays and other times. Yep. I'm sure any Friday that you want, Joel would pair with you on some Elm. He's still referred to as their Elm Ninja. Elm Ninja, indeed. Right. Our resident Elm Spurt. That's not good. Elm Spurt. <laughs> We're going to stick with Elm Ninja. Yeah, that's better. So Aptable, you mentioned that there. Aptable is very similar to Heroku in my experience working on this project. It's Heroku, but with HIPAA compliance and, and things like that because of this, we were working in, with a medical company or medical data company in this case. So we had to have HIPAA compliance in there. Lots of things that come along with that, which I never mm -hmm. fully understand all of the ramifications of HIPAA, but we just have to be much more careful with data and the platforms right. that we use have to be HIPAA compliant. Right. At this point, I think Heroku actually has a HIPAA compliant thing, Heroku Shield, I want to say. That sounds right. I uh, have seen that advertised where they have it now, but I haven't actually dug into it and used it. Yeah, yeah I've also not used it. I just know it, it didn't exist when this team started up, but Aptable is a very similar experience where like, I can give you my code and you take care of the rest. I don't want to deal with it. Although the application that I'm working on is, is more complicated, there are more moving pieces to it than I think the one that you're on. Actually, the one that I'm on talks to the one that you're on. <laughs> And then that one talks back, and then there's Auth has actually been separated out. And one of our colleagues who's also on the project, John Schumann, has been spending some of this week setting up another instance of the application of all of those pieces for a pen test or a penetration test. External security consulting firm coming in and, and trying to poke at it and see what they, you know, if they can break in, if there are any security holes. Mm -hmm. And it has been interesting both watching and working with him a little bit on trying to get that set up. And it is sort of all of the pains that come to mind for me when I think of a service-oriented architecture, you know, breaking your application apart into pieces. And I hadn't even, when I first got to this client, I didn't even think of like, man, we really broke this into a lot of pieces, didn't we? But as I started to look at it, there's just a lot there. And yeah. the pain of setting up another instance of this whole thing, it, it's mm -hmm. when you really feel it. And just subtle misconfigurations in DNS or in SSL or in OAuth or all of these different technologies that we take mm -hmm. for granted once they're working. But if you ever need to do it again, it's not, we didn't write it down. We don't, we forget. And it's right. subtle and debugging DNS errors is the worst. <laughs> I didn't go on that journey with him. What did he run into? There was a rogue www dot, like a rogue subdomain. But right now Google is trying to say that it doesn't exist or not that it doesn't. Let me not misspeak here. Google sure. recently made an update to Chrome that will no longer display www dot or m dot, those two subdomains, just specifically those two. Hmm because they're basically, they're treated colloquially as if they don't mean anything, as if they're just like, oh, they're just actually, it's just the www. It doesn't mean anything. Okay. It actually does. It means the same thing as any other subdomain, pretty much. I yeah. think there are probably some special handlings of it, huh. but Chrome is now not going to show it anymore. 
But again, it, it does matter. And so there was a rogue www in one of the domain configurations, possibly at the OAuth level, possibly an actual DNS. I forget which it was, but it was in yeah. one of those layers. And the problem with DNS stuff is it's so hard to debug. Mm -hmm. You make a fix and you're like, okay, A, it's going to take a little while to propagate. B, right. there's like seven layers of really aggressive caching between yeah. me and that domain change. And we were chasing down everything. We were like, all right, we fixed that, but it's, it hasn't fixed it. So we're trying all of these other things, mm. getting really nuanced in our debugging, and finally just started working. And we're like, wait, what? And you have no idea why? Oh, that's a We were able to like roll <laughs> okay. back the most recent change that we had done, mm. which proved to us that, in fact, it was the DNS change, okay. just finally propagating and clearing caches. But yeah. At least you walked away with some sanity. Some. Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> a little bit. When I was talking with John, I was like, I'm going to need us to check and see which thing it was, whether or not we solved it the way we thought we did, or whether yeah. or not it was just the DNS finally getting there. Mm -hmm. And thankfully, we, we were able to figure that out in a way that we felt like we knew what had happened. But man, distributing your app gets complicated. There are times when it makes sense. It's important to balance these arguments, but I was particularly feeling the pains of a distributed application architecture this week. And specifically, the distributed that you're talking about, the fact that they have one product that is talking to another product that mm -hmm. has all the users, but then that product has the authentication piece that is separated out. So yes. there's, there's not, as you mentioned earlier, it's like it doesn't seem too many when you first dive into the mm -hmm. app. There's only like those three. And then if you're really working on one, ideally, there's only like another one that you have to work with. Mm -hmm. Did you feel any particular pain with Auth0 or just the fact that it's distributed in general? I think Auth0 does a fine job, but it was the fact that Auth was, was a separate concern. And the yeah. fact that the application that I'm working on and that I'm most familiar with in this stack is sort of like third tier. Mm. So there's Auth0, which is the, the canonical truth for yeah. authentication. The secondary application, which is the one that you work on, is mm -hmm. the canonical source of truth for user information. And then the one that I'm in is the one that asks everybody else what's going on. And right. so we have a representation of users. We have our own user table, but we decorate those users in something that behind the scenes will talk to the secondary application or redirect to Auth0. And yeah. those redirect loops that we got into, like again, I, I don't think it was anything that Auth0 particularly did. I think they do right. an admirable job, but... I forgot it, about those, yeah. yeah. Yep, I remember that. <laughs> I remember experiencing those. <laughs> Yeah, and it is tougher, like you said, being on that one. If you're further removed, the product I'm on is closer to Auth0, so there's probably a little less pain. Yeah, you're one step but... removed. I'm two steps removed. Yeah. But the other thing I'll say is it reminded me that even in the case that I like of the true monolith that I think of, there are actually subtle pieces that are not. So specifically in this case, we ran into issues with the database and with Redis. Hmm. And accidentally having Redis configured across different environments, and that got very complicated. And when the Redis instance was distinct from the database instance, particularly with active storage is one of the things that we ran into right now, mm -hmm. we're trying to debug some missing attachments. And active storage has a very interesting data model. It is polymorphic. It's a single table. It's mm -hmm. separate from the place that you're actually, like the model that you're having the attachment on. And trying to back out of that and figure out, well, okay, some of these don't have an attachment. Right. That's bad. And we also, it's mm -hmm. impossible based on that database structure to constrain a model to require the attachment mm. because you, you can't do foreign keys with a polymorphic association. Yeah. All of this mixing together, it made for a real adventure. Yeah. But again, like those are part of what I would espouse is like the simple architecture. So mm. almost every application that I'm going to work on will have Postgres as the database mm -hmm. and Redis as the sidekick, background job, queue, right. et cetera. And so at a minimum, we're distributed in that way. And trying to keep those three in sync is even a challenge. Sure. Then when you add on the other layers, 
becomes a whole thing. Yeah, it becomes a lot, especially onboarding and getting accustomed to it all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I hear you. But yeah, those are, those have been some of my adventures this week. Any any fun things you've played with this week? There was an interesting conversation that came up where we were looking to store some unstructured data. And in particular, we were looking to store, we have users that they can report like if there's an inaccuracy when they do like a search. And in that search, once they have the parameters, if they want to report that inaccuracy to an admin at the team, they can send that off. And we'd really like the admin team to be able to see exactly what they searched for. So our idea was to store the exact search parameters that they had used. So our first pass was to store it as unstructured data. We've actually changed that idea and we're not going with that approach anymore. But it was still a bit of a fun dive because I was looking into JSONB, which is a column type that I've used like once before, like pretty far back. It was on the project when I first started at ThoughtBot that I was introduced to the JSONB column type. So I dove back into it this week, and it is pretty cool. I don't know of a lot of times that I would use it, Mm -hmm. but it's something to know about. Uh, For anyone that's not familiar with it, there are two column types in Postgres, and I'll speak specifically to Postgres because I'm not sure how well it translates to MySQL. But I think since Postgres 9.4, they released uh, the JSON and JSONB column types, stands for the JavaScript object notation, and JSONB is JavaScript object notation. And I like to call the Bs for better. <laughs> I know it's I know it's for binary, but I thought it was cute, and so I, I call it better. <laughs> I support that nomenclature. Thank you. Thank I you. co-signed that bank loan. So looking into that one, I found out that so if you store the data, the unstructured data in JSON, it's just going to store it in sort of like that raw format dump. It's going to store it with like all the white space. It's going to store it with like the order of the keys. It's going to store duplicate keys. Likely a string representation like in the storage engine? Pretty much, yes. It's going to basically be like a string representation of that JSON. I think you do get validation of the string. It's going to make sure it's like a valid JSON object. But I think that's really like the main benefit Mm -hmm. of that. And then JSONB on the flip side, if there's any reason you might want to query your records based on that data, that unstructured data that's going in, that's where JSONB has its superpowers because it's built, it's optimized for querying. So it's going to actually store it in a binary format. And then that way you can run queries on it. And it's also going to get rid of white space and do you some other favors. Interesting. I've not worked with it, but I have heard of it. And broadly, like there was the NoSQL wars of a couple of years ago and Mongo and things like that mm-hmm. uh, gaining prominence. And I tried to steer clear of them. But for a while, there was there wasn't a clear answer of like, but if I really, really want unstructured data, I have to go over to Mongo. And it was nice to see when JSONB was introduced because then it's a clear answer of, you can have your structured data, and I'm a firm believer that the vast majority of the time you should have your structured data. Yes. I worked on client projects where there was ad hoc implementations of relational data stores built within Mongo, and it's not as good at it, it turns out. Yeah. Postgres is amazingly good at that, or any yeah. of the relational data engines are are all similar. But yeah, I've not actually tried it. So hmm. when you're working on it on the other project and a little bit that you did here, did you enjoy it? Like was the, I don't know what the even the question is here, but like good, do you like? I would definitely reach for it again if I need it. If yeah. I were in a situation where I felt like I definitely needed something in that realm, I would look for JSONB. It would be hard for me to 
probably find a reason to use right. JSON in its sense, or even to use the JSONB. But if I were using it, I would feel more confident in reaching for it and knowing that then I also get some niceties with it with mm -hmm. being able to query. It is a little bit slower when you're going to write to that field because it's having to like format it to be that binary format. But you're going to get that speed or get that time back later when you have to filter records. So yep. you don't have to like scan every record and parse every you're record. You're saying it's a little bit slower relative to just raw JSON Correct. storage. Yep. 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 Yeah, that's probably one of those millisecond distinctions that don't matter in a Rails app. Yeah. <laughs> All millisecond distinctions don't matter in a Rails app. I feel like the writing process, users aren't as, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, urgent and like getting it written, but mm -hmm. when they want to see data and we need to get it back. Right. I feel like that's a more important performance piece of it. Yep, absolutely. What was the use case in the, the one application that you were using the unstructured data? Oh, right. So let's see. It was back with one of my first projects and we were building out very small sort of like questionnaire where we needed to be able to send users some questions and have them reply with answers. We knew those questions were very much in flux and mm -hmm. we weren't sure what they were going to change to. We were still filling them out. So we wanted a way to essentially just like imprint, like to store in the data, like what questions did they answer, what responses did they mm -hmm. give back, and then that way if we changed it in the future, we didn't lose that historical record of which questions they right. had answered to. So that was something that we reached for. We went for JSONB, and then that way when they gave us all of that back, we stored that in the database as is. Yep. I think that, that makes sense. That's the sort of use case that I think does warrant it, although broadly speaking, the, the use of unstructured data is one of those things that if mentioned, I will almost always be like, mm, are we sure though? Yeah. Are, are we definitely sure? I'm actually, right now in the client project that I'm working on, we're talking about introducing surveys. And there are a few surveys which have mm -hmm. a known structure and a fixed structure, mm -hmm. but broadly the expectation is that over time, we'll see more and more of these and we wanna do the general solution that will handle all of them, which likely requires a general ad hoc data storage in the back end. And I'm still in each of the meetings, I'm like, but what if we made a table that just had the fields that mapped to the, the ones that we have now, mm -hmm. uh, but we're like right on the cusp, and I think it will fall in the camp of using JSONB is likely going to be the storage or something to that effect. And it's always an interesting conversation. I think it's a good yeah. conversation to have. I think there are plenty of times where it will make sense to go the unstructured data route, mm -hmm. but I do think it's worth being sensitive to that and making sure you ask the question. Yeah. Well, and sometimes it feels like that appropriate like first implementation approach of like you're really not sure like mm -hmm. how it's going to shape in the future. But if surveys become like a pretty like crucial part to the application, then it may be worth revisiting in the future to figure out if maybe this data needs to be structured or mm -hmm. could be structured in a different way. So. I mean, my stance would be go the opposite and start with the structured data. And then if it's ah, too painful, unstructure it. And but then unstructure it? Okay. I think that comes from I've been on plenty of projects where I look at something and I'm like, oh, this is is very loose here. Why are we using Mongo for this? And yeah. it sounds like we have a lot of pain. They're like, yeah, we thought it would just be like we're doing a prototype. And then the prototype became the product. And now it's enshrined forever. And there's no way that we could ever move yeah. off of Mongo or JSONB or any of the other. Mm -hmm. Like, we really wish we had some structure here. But we do not. And we cannot because we can't stop moving now. Yeah. So I, I tend, to, especially where like I don't feel much pain around using a relational data store. Mm -hmm. It's so natural in my mind. Mm -hmm. You do have to do a little more work. That, that is true, but I feel like that work is paid back. There are dividends that come from that. So my intuition would always be like, if we're not like super duper certain that we need unstructured data, then let's start with 
foreign keys and strong relational structure and all those sort of things. But again, we all have our biases and the, the path that we took to get to the strongly held opinions that we have. So yeah, I can totally understand that because it is hard to like have that moment to reflect because we all want to pretend like once we make a decision, be like, oh, well, we'll we'll come back in a couple months and then we'll decide if maybe we should change this. But that moment rarely happens. There's rarely that time in a team where it's like, oh, let's just address this now. Mm-hmm. So I, I can understand that sentiment to do the tougher work up front versus like pretending it's going to happen later. Yeah. Yeah. The pretending it's going to happen later, the backlog column of uh, refactorings, those. Oh, I have feelings about tech debt tickets. <laughs> Let's talk about that then. Okay. What are your feelings about tech debt tickets? I feel that we'll start on the positive note. Every so often they can be great where you get to document something that needs to be done and then you can sort of like prioritize it with the rest of the work that needs to get done. But then most of the time when that happens, it just doesn't get prioritized because it's hard for like a product manager or for someone who's running the sprint to justify like, oh, we have this important feature and Mm -hmm. we have this tech debt. So that's putting a lot of responsibility on them to be kind and to help us like prioritize those Mm -hmm. tickets. So it really depends on like the size of the tech debt. If it's something that I feel like it can be accomplished in that sprint, then I push typically pretty hard to be like, hey, well, let's just go ahead and work on it now. It is part of this ticket. Like if we need to do this feature and we also need this refactor, let's at best try to do the refactor first so then we can make the change mm-hmm. afterwards. Those are my feelings. Those are, I, <laughs> yeah, I share all of those feelings. The other aspect that often comes to mind for me is when you're in code and when you're feeling the pain of some data structure or architecture that the universe has now proven isn't ideal, mm-hmm. that's the time that you have the most context. You're in there. You're in the thick of it. You're feeling the pain. You've loaded all of those concepts up into your RAM. Exactly. Yeah. And you have it. Yep. And if the idea is like, yeah, but we shouldn't do that now because mm-hmm. we're in the middle of a thing. Mm-hmm. Actually, I would say being in the middle of the thing is the perfect time. That's actually probably the part of tech deck cards that I resist the most is the mm-hmm. idea that, oh, we'll just put it on the backlog and come back to it. Often in my experience with it, it's actually a different engineer who ends up picking up that tech deck card, yep. tries to read the paragraph that the other person wrote, but that person wrote it with a bunch of context in their head and then gave a paragraph. Mm-hmm. That paragraph may actually be an admirable attempt at documenting everything that's in their head, but it, it's never going to have the same right. detail and context. And yep. so you lose that. And I've seen so many times where it's like, all right, yeah, we're finally going to pick up that tech deck card. And someone picks it up and they're like, I I don't know what this means or how to do it. Yeah. I'm not even sure that that system exists anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and it's those sort of conversations. They're like, all right, yeah, throw it back on the column. I guess we'll do something else now. Yeah, it's too uh, ambiguous. It's yeah. too like it's too hard to tackle. You don't see the value anymore. It usually is a different engineer that's going to get saddled with it. And I completely agree. When you have the context, that is the right time to tackle it because you have the pain and you know the value of mm-hmm. it. And you can drive it forwards. If you leave it for somebody else, then you're just really hoping that they're going to share your pain and understand, which reasonably they won't. Nope. Nope. That is not a reasonable expectation. I would actually even go so far as to say this is a symptom of a a broader thing that I believe in, which is like, I don't believe in sprints mm-hmm. or even iteration. So like the idea of I've sprinting, this. weekly sprints, two-week sprints, whatever, if they're back-to-back, mm-hmm. you can't sprint that hard. That's not how humans work. Yeah. You have to stop. You have to rest. Yeah. Sprints are a short burst of effort, but even setting aside the nomenclature, which I do think that words matter. So if you're working in that iterative approach... I would prefer to call them iterations. But even setting that aside, I actually, I think there are benefits to that iteration approach to the the cadence of the one or two week. We do some stuff and then mm-hmm. we stop. We have a planning meeting. We fill out the backlog. But mm-hmm. that idea of like tech debt gets pushed out because we're working on the thing. Right. And that refactoring is not a core part of the work, that mm-hmm. it's a separate thing that we need to make time for in the future, but that there's not constant time for. 
Yeah. Similarly, I see PR review as something that gets talked about. Oh. Like, oh, yeah, I'm yeah, I'm at the end of the sprint. I don't have any other cards to pick up, so I guess I'll do some PR review. Hmm. Again, I feel like PR review should be it's, – it's the lifeblood of how we move everything through. Code review is so central to the work that at any given time – all three of those are sort of the things that I think I should be doing. At any given time, I'm only doing one of them, but it's not that there's a certain time in the week that I do one of them and a certain time in the week that I do another. Right. I want all three of those and possibly more. I'm forgetting if there are more aspects yeah. of the work, but I guess even planning, like the idea that planning happens once a week or once every two weeks, mm -hmm. and then we put our heads down and we do the work mm -hmm. also doesn't feel true to me. Once you get into the work, you start to figure out new things. You start to understand the world differently. Yeah. Questions come up. Right. And so I'm a fan of continuous conversation, continuous PR review, continuous mm -hmm. refactoring, all of those things kind of like it's just the same thing every day. You come in, you pick up the most important piece of work, you work on it. If in the process you find out that our assumptions were wrong, let's have a conversation. If in the process you find code that doesn't feel right, Let's pause and refactor it. Absolutely. And Granted, we'll all of that's grandiose and implies that we have infinite time and, and no deadlines or anything like that. But In an ideal world. Well, and having you say that part about sprints is something that resonates with me. It was earlier on when I started sort of entering that whole like sprinting model. And I thought it was interesting how we do call them sprints because I was like, this is this is intense. Like this is this is the rest of my life. Yep. <laughs> it's like for working is I'm I'm supposed to sprints like just a series every of back to back sprints until and, you collapse and die. <laughs> and I mean, I already think running's the worst, so <laughs> this just doesn't seem like it's going to work for me. And I have found that it is certainly a balance, and it's something mm -hmm. that you have to achieve. So it might just be a bit of the naming that's fun to like tease at and poke at. Yeah. But I do agree with you that sometimes we use the sprint too much of this finite. Like this is what we agreed to, so this is what we're going to do, mm -hmm. and. Often it's more of a guideline, like these are the things that are next to work on that we'd like to get done. But if there is tech debt, if there's a refactoring opportunity, if we need to rethink a feature, these are great times to do it rather than just pushing it over the finish line mm -hmm. just to push it over the finish line. Yep. I will say, though, the counterpoint to everything that I just said, and I think what you just said, although I don't want to put words in your mouth, there are times when things need to get done. There are times when we have real commitments, real deadlines that yep. we have to hit. Yep. We have external forces that are constraining us such that taking a detour to clean up the code mm -hmm. isn't always an option. That's fair. It needs that's to sometimes fair. be an option, and that's a critical part of the conversation. Yeah. But it's not always an option. So sometimes we do just have to get the thing done. But mm -hmm. I hope that's not always the mentality. Yeah. Well, and I, I've certainly had those moments. And that's why I try to start with the positive part of, like, I don't normally like tech debt cards for that reason because yep. they don't get done but i also don't want to say anything that's so definite that doesn't mean they can't be a thing because there are those times like you yep. just said where we do need to still focus on getting something shipped for a particular important reason something that the team has buy-in for and then once that's done everybody acknowledges the fact that okay well let's revisit that thing that we didn't have time to revisit mm -hmm. so it feels like it's sort of already prioritized for the next sprint you've s essentially delayed it rather than putting it in a backlog well, i think there's a related topic here that we can probably dig into you recently co-authored a blog post about story points, which I think I fits into this whole story yep. about how do we plan and day-to-day -day do the work that we do. So mm -hmm. what do you think about story points? <laughs> what feelings uh, do you have on the matter? Yeah, that blog post was interesting. It, it was my first one with Appa. And then also it does seem to be a topic that evokes a lot of emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, people certainly have different experiences with story points. My overall experience with story points hasn't been a particularly productive one. I, I don't think they're essential in the ways that I've used them. There's, of course, obligatory like sort of statement of like, well, you're probably using them wrong. And that could be 
totally fair and totally true. But then my thought process is like, well, like if I can't get this right, maybe the cost of getting this right is too high. Mm-hmm. I feel like a tool that's supposed to help me shouldn't be this difficult. And I find that it's often easier to talk about work just in increments of time. There's no barrier between like we don't have used points and sort of like correlate that with like, well, what scale are we using and what does a two mean? What does a five mean? And then you also have to work out, well, if I say it's a two and you say it's a five, whose number do we go with? I have seen some productive uses of it where it can have a nice discussion around how tickets work. That's probably one of the the primary reasons that I have seen some teams want to stick with story points, especially if they have some new members on the team, because it's sort of like this opportunity for them to look at a ticket and discuss not just from a feature perspective, but a technical perspective, like how complicated do we think this is? And if someone on the team says, oh, well, this is a one, but someone else says it's a five, then that's a really good opportunity to talk about that disconnect there and why somebody thinks it's very easy and somebody doesn't. Mm-hmm. So it can bring up some helpful conversations there, but I think that can also be done without the necessary story points. I think you can do that and just discussing like, do we think we can get this ticket done in the sprint? Do we think people should pair on this ticket? There's also the opportunity, like if you wanted to put some label on it, is it like small, medium, or large? Those Mm -hmm. are pretty friendly terms to use as well that aren't sort of numbers that people then have to translate to a different value. But it was interesting writing that blog post because uh, it was uh, written by me and Matt Sumner, who is another thought botter here. Who's our previous guest. So there'll be nice continuity between these episodes. Excellent. Excellent. And he also has strong feelings on story points. And I remember the first time we went through it and he he was writing on it. And I was like, oh, that sounds interesting because I also have feelings. So we should get together and work on this. And he showed me his first draft. And I was like... That's a lot of strong opinions, Matt. I was like, we might should make this a little friendlier. So I think it helped for he and I to both sit down and and work on it together. So we felt like we were giving it a fair shake. Mm -hmm. And likely sort of the intersection of your two beliefs is going to be a more representative sort of thing than any one of us. It's one of the things that I value so deeply about working here, but also just working with people in general. I have some friends who are just freelancing at this point in their career, not necessarily developers, but Mm -hmm. some of them are also developers. And regularly the thing that they mentioned to me is like i just wish i had someone to talk to not even someone who like knows a ton just someone yeah just someone to like force me to verbalize and then say some things but then Mm -hmm. also to get the feedback and then ideally if they do have similar or contrasting opinions like there's so much value in all of that and Mm -hmm. we have that in abundance here at thoughtbot and so i do love those conversations and i feel like if you find the intersection of any two thoughtbotters strongly held opinions Mm -hmm. you've probably found a good place Any one of us in isolation, you know, we may have some out there opinions. But if you take two thought botters and you plot the point in between them, I feel like you're almost guaranteed to get a a good idea out of that. For anyone that is in favor of story points, I do think uh, Lori, who is in our London office, Mm -hmm. he did write a blog post, but I think he put it on LinkedIn where he wrote that he's in favor of story points, Mm -hmm. but not everybody at ThoughtBot agrees. Yep. And I haven't had the time to read it yet, uh, but I think one of the points that he does make when I've heard him talk about it before is when he uses story points and they feel productive is the fact that they're just used for the development team. They're mm-hmm. not used to communicate to any external team. They're not used to sort of work on deadlines or say, yep. oh, well, if this is five points, we can have it done by this date and then hold the team accountable to that. So I, I think I can certainly see why some people have had a very positive experience with mm-hmm. them. If I'm encountered uh, with story points in the wild again, I will go in with an optimistic ac- attitude and, and we'll see. We'll I see mean, you mostly goes. have an optimistic <laughs> attitude, so. I try. I I'll try. be honest. This is one that I'm like on the fence about. Or there's an implementation of story points that I can be okay with. Broadly, I think 
my experiences with them have been less than positive. Okay. I feel like they're a practice that has a cost, and mm -hmm. often teams are susceptible to adopting a practice without evaluating the cost associated with it. So story points, A, take time just to have the discussion and to come to an agreement about what that number is. So that is a fundamental cost, but they also alter the way we think about the work. Hmm. There's this game of juggling, well, I don't know, maybe it's a four, maybe it's a two, or let's let's inflate this one because product management keeps holding us accountable to the things that we say. Yes. And yeah. conversations become less honest as a result. And that is, I yeah. think, a huge cost that we can pay. Yeah. Those are things that concern me about them. I'm so glad you brought that up. I actually forgot about that part, where the fact that it can become a game. Yeah. And people might not feel as great. Like someone's contribution to a team shouldn't be quantified by the points they can push over the finish line. I hadn't even thought about that one, but that is such a dangerous and real thing that does yeah. happen. I can't remember if we talked about that in the blog post, but that was something Matt and I definitely discussed. Yep. It was like one of the downsides that could happen with the keeping score. We can have score. a follow-on blog post of even oh. more downsides to even story Even more points. downsides. The internet will love it. <laughs> And a way to have the conversation, and I sort of believe this broadly, is talking about story points, I think, is one of those topics that gets a little odd. People tend mm -hmm. to like dig in on either side. Very much. But I think yeah. the important aspect is to step back and say, so story points are a tool. Mm -hmm. What are we trying to achieve? What are the problems that we're trying to solve? Or what are the goals? What are, what are the ends that we have in mind? And that story points are the tool to then achieve that. Mm -hmm. So I see a few different things. One is product management, wanting to be able to communicate out timelines for things. Mm -hmm. Broadly, I think that's another complicated topic in and of itself. Matt Sumner also wrote a blog post on that topic. I helped him with that one. It's got a wonderful diagram nice. of a comet of success in it. I think I've seen this one. I think I love that blog post. Yeah. So we'll link to that in the show notes as well. But I think deadlines are, again, they're a tool and mm -hmm. they can be used for certain ends, but I, everything can't have a deadline. That's the thing that I strongly believe. Yeah. Also, along with my heretical belief that we shouldn't work in sprints or any sort of iteration, we should just kind of show up and do good work each day in, mm -hmm. a, in a sort of continuous fashion. Mm -hmm. Certain things will have deadlines. They should be unique and probably rare. And we should know what those deadlines are. And we should hit those. Right. We can reevaluate scope or team or all different ways to get that. And you know, there's a whole conversation to be had there. But it shouldn't be everything. Mm -hmm. It shouldn't be every two weeks we take a bucket of features and say, can we commit to these? Commit is probably the word that I take the most issue with in yeah. discussions around story points. Yeah. Can we commit to these? And my answer every single time, somewhat perhaps annoyingly, is no. I will not commit to any. Do you want me to commit to one of them? And whatever version we can, like, I don't want to seem like I'm the entitled developer. And I mean this in, like, the conversations that I have, but also in this conversation here. Okay. This is not me believing that, like, you can't hold me accountable hold to anything. Me accountable. <laughs> you definitely can hold me accountable. Yeah. I have a job. I have to deliver things. Yeah. But inherent to software development is discovery. Mm -hmm. uh, I wish it were a little more straightforward. Mm -hmm. And there are cases where it is straightforward. You want me to have a form that can take in some data, save it to the database, and then show it back? I can pretty confidently estimate for you how long that's going to take. Mm -hmm. You want me to integrate with a third-party system that we don't actually know how it works yet? Mm -hmm. That may take me a month. That may take me a year. Actually, I may be able to get it done tomorrow. There may be a library yeah. for it. And it's not like <laughs> there's so much variability. And it's also very hard for folks who aren't in the development world to understand that variability. Mm -hmm. Which tasks will be hard and which tasks will be easy. Mm -hmm. There's an XKCD around this of like asking a computer, was this picture taken in the Grand Canyon? Very easy because of geolocation. Ah. Was, does this picture contain a bird? Yeah. Very hard. Yeah. And that distinction is not intuitive from the outside. Mm -hmm. So story points is a way to enforce timelines and deliverables, mm -hmm. I think, is dangerous. And I think we can have I a agree. different conversation around the few things that really do have deadlines. Mm -hmm. 
that's the part that I don't believe in and that I think we have to have a different conversation around. And broadly, mm-hmm. my thoughts about sprints and burning those down and you know all of that. Yeah. But the other side of forcing a conversation around the complexity inherent to a piece of work, I think is actually useful. I've, mm-hmm. I think this is what you were implying with, with the other blog posts that you mentioned the, and the small, medium, large that you mentioned. I found value in just having the team talk about the feature and mm-hmm. then say like, what do you, is this a small, a medium, or a large, or too big? Right. And if it's too big, we need to break it up. We need right. to figure out a way to, to break that down. But if one person says small and one person says large, mm-hmm. we may not actually all be thinking about the same thing. So it encourages more conversation there. But I actually like throwing out the story points after we've done it. Yeah. Just throw them out. Yeah. They're useful for conversation. They're a tool, but they're a tool to enable conversation. I haven't found tracking them to be useful. That's true. That's a good point. Like if you want to use story points as part of your estimation as a reason to talk about it, but then those numbers actually aren't written down or at least persisted anywhere. Mm -hmm. I hadn't thought of that before. That would be an interesting use of story points just to see if they help facilitate that conversation. But I would suspect that using like just small, medium and large would also help facilitate that conversation. And it's not something that necessarily has to be written down anywhere, but it gives the team the opportunity to talk about it. I also have similar feelings uh, about deadlines. I think they can be very important and they certainly happen in our world. And there are times that we really do need to use them to make sure we communicate with others that are relying on something to be done by a certain time. But most of the time, I feel like deadlines are often inherited or passed down from a source into which we don't have insight into. Mm -hmm. So at that point, you're losing buy-in from the team to sort of say, okay, I understand why this is important. I understand what is important and the date that it has to be done by and I'm in and I'm Mm -hmm. ready and let's do this. And it's to the point that you start sort of coupling the estimation to deadlines that makes me extremely wary for that Mm -hmm. reason. One, because you might be using estimation, which is typically always wrong to then feed into a deadline or the opposite direction where you're just handing a team deadlines and then they're just going to feel more like they're giving the sort of marching orders, but they're not actually part of the team that's making up those deadlines. Mm -hmm. So there's not often a lot of analysis and a thought that goes into the creation of a deadline. Like they're pretty easy to like pick a date and say, let's go with this. But the team that's doing the work needs to be part of that process if there is going to be a deadline assigned. I think the the worst version of it that I have experienced was I was on a team. We were given a large Excel sheet of specifications, mm. detailed, tons of stuff in there, and they asked us to line by line estimate them, and then we were going to aggregate those estimates, and Whoa. the sum of that would be the date that the software would be ready. Oh. And I'm going to be honest, this was a little earlier in my career. If that were to happen now, I think I would push back very strongly because that is the very core of what I don't believe in and a thing that I am certain will fail. I'm so fascinated to know what you did. (laughs) I sat in on the meetings. We still went through the process. Every day Mm -hmm. was under duress. Every day I came in and I said, this will not work. These will fall down. Yeah. But if this is what you are asking of me for this week, I will do it. Right. I just want to be as clear and as loud as possible with this. Yeah. Like I'm not going to storm out of the building or something. And actually at this point, I wouldn't storm out of the building because I I believe in productive communication and things like that. But I, I would not do this at this point. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm like, I want to know, I want to be put on a client now and actually be put to the test on this and see how I would react. But we did this, we built it all up. And the things that I was saying was like, A, this math doesn't hold up. Mm. There is uncertainty in every one of these values. And by adding them, mm-hmm. you're not reducing the uncertainty, you're compounding it. Any one of these could triple, quadruple, mm-hmm. be 10x the estimate. Mm-hmm. And they all could be. Mm -hmm. And we have something that's worse than nothing here because you may believe this document. If Mm -hmm. this thing tells you it's seven months until we can get you that software, you might believe that. You're going to leave this room thinking it's seven months and then you'll have that software that you've identified in your mind. But A, that's not going to happen. B, I hope to God we change the thing that we're building along the way. 
Yeah. That idea of, of waterfall, the historical like, okay, somebody set. up on high figures it out and then yep. passes down the specifications and then that goes to the testers and then it's, yeah. you know, the documentation writers and that doesn't work. I think we've we've tested that one. And again, there, there are times where that's an absolute requirement. Mm -hmm. um, a few episodes ago, I had Kane on and Kane was describing their work with government things, with building census software. And like, you know what, sometimes you do have to do this. Even then, I think there's a spectrum of waterfall to Agile, and and hopefully both of those are with lowercase letters and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. But very quickly on that project. So then we started to actually do the work, and features changed because mm -hmm. we recognized as we were building it that the thing that they had first identified isn't actually what the client needed. Okay. I don't actually know if they were doing any actual outreach to clients and yeah. like showing mock-ups or things like that. I think yeah. that also would have been critically part of the process to inform the features that we're building as opposed to just always helps. having executives decide that. But yeah. also the deadline varied yeah. in many ways. Like there were actually external constraints, contractual obligations and things like that. And as sure. those got closer, oh, we got very honest about what the scope would be. Uh, and so one of the conversations that I actually had just in this past two weeks was we had a very long running project with the current client. And there was an important conversation at the end that sort of outlined the last few things that we needed to do mm -hmm. in order to lock down the future. Mm -hmm. And we were having a retro about that whole body of work. And someone asked the question like, well, wouldn't it have been better to have that meeting at the beginning? Mm -hmm. And my answer was, sure, but that's not possible. Yeah. The only reason I knew the answers to the questions in that meeting was because of all of the work we had done in between. Right. But at the same time, my actual answer that I gave after thinking about it was, yes, and. Like, oh. sure, have the conversation up front and then have it again mm -hmm. and then have it again. Keep mm -hmm. asking the question of what do we need to do to get this offer in front of real people? Mm -hmm. I think that's the most important question, the one that we should ask basically every day. Yeah. And that's one of the few things that I like definitively believe about software. Everything else I half believe or quarter believe. The fact that it's always something that you have to visit each day and then recommunicate like where you are. And specifically the question of what do we have to do to get this in front of real people? Yeah. There was one project that I worked on where we actually had to hold back the the product team. Mm. They would come to us every day and say, can we sell it yet? Can we sell it yet? They were yeah. a very sales-driven culture, and they knew yeah. what they wanted, and they really wanted to get it out there in the world and sell it. Right. And it's the only time that I've experienced that mm. as opposed to the opposite of, oh, you know what? Let's just add a little bit of polish here. Let's, mm -hmm. uh, let's improve this workflow a little bit and constantly pushing that out before they put it in front of real people. Mm. This client was like every, every day they were coming to us and saying, can we sell it yet? Yeah. And it was a wonderfully productive engagement because we were doing that iterative process. We were constantly asking, what can we cut? How can we get there? Right. And then they got it in front of people, a small number of people to start. Sure. And they got amazing feedback. And then we iterated. And then we put it in front of more people. Mm -hmm. And they iterated. And they iterated. And mm -hmm. yeah, that, that's what I believe about software. Yeah. Well, and that's exciting for the dev team, too, to be able to get something to put it in like a, a usable form, something that users can give feedback on, get it to them, get some feedback from it, and then keep working on it. Like yep. getting something to perfection and holding it back and then shipping it is usually a way that's a bit uncomfortable to handle mm. those features. So I understand, yeah, that seems like a really productive way to go about it. Those are usually been my more like favorite ways to build features and get them out to the public and then continue to sort of work on them as we go. Yep. And it, it is scary, but you know, you got to get past the fear. Start yeah. small. Yeah. The big launch, I think, is another thing that I probably don't believe in. Hmm. The like, we're building up to the day that the press releases are going to go out and things like that. Uh -huh. There can be aspects to that, but the idea that it's a singular event and the idea that you have to get it right. Sure. If you cannot do any of those things, <laughs> like this particular client was repeatedly launching the software, reaching out to their mailing list, contacting customers that they had great relationships with, mm -hmm. and 
putting up, initially it was mock-ups. They actually got out in front of us and were using very rough mock-ups saying like, okay, here's roughly the software. It's going to do this. These are the things. Would you pay for that? Right. And they got great feedback. And it was amazing when they came to me based on the feedback of that, saying like, never mind, drop what you're doing scratch that. Yeah. We're doing this instead. Yeah. And I could see actually developers getting angry about that, but I, I loved it. Oh, okay. Angry because like, I was right in the middle and, of a thing, yeah. but... Yeah. You have to switch. We have to build the thing that the customers want. Right. It's not about us. When I get so excited when I am working on a client project or just a project in general, and someone mentions the fact that they've already shown like prototypes, uh, the MBTA did a, a great job of this when I was there with them, where they were always working on prototypes. And then they would pop up a table that was downstairs, MBTA, they have a large food court where people would come in. So they would have like a box of donuts and they would draw people over to look at the prototypes, get them to play with it. And then they would collect all that feedback and bring it back to us. But I loved that part of knowing that the feature that I was building had already been seen by somebody. Mm -hmm. That felt really good. A real human in the world wants this thing. Yes. And not only that they want this thing, but they understand this thing. Because mm. that's, a, that's a hard one for like maybe uh, for sites like MBTA, where like you do have so much information that you're trying to give to the user and so many different types of users mm. and what they want. And they were trying to use different symbols and it looked really great. But then users were looking at them and they're like, I just, I don't know what the symbols mean. And so it was really good feedback. And we didn't actually spend any dev time on it before we implemented so that that was a really good feeling. And then by the time we got to the stage of implementation, we already knew that we had something that would work for mm -hmm. a number of users. And yep. then we could go from there. The phrase you use there, we didn't waste any dev time on that, is always interesting to me. Hmm. Like, I don't want to feel fancy, but it's an unfortunate reality that our time is costly because this stuff's hard. I wish that yeah. it weren't. And a lot of, like, my Fridays are spent trying to find better, more efficient more effective ways to build software so that right. that number can come down. Yeah. But for now, it's pretty high. And so anything that you can do before that, any simpler mock-ups, et cetera, are so valuable because you can get more iterations, you can get more cycles, and you don't have to spend for actual code. Code is expensive. Mm -hmm. I'm so glad you called that out because, yeah, that's a good point. To echo what you said, it's very much like the fact that that code is expensive, and but also to get to that stage, to the point that someone worked on it, mm. other people reviewed it, you got it deployed, then you had that time in between where somebody actually saw it and then took the time to communicate to say, mm -hmm. hey, I don't understand this and we need to change it. That whole process is also expensive. Yep. That's a good clarification of when saying like wasting dev time. Yes. Yeah, I, like I worry that a fallout of this inherent reality is that developers will feel fancy is the word I chose before, but like like our time is more valuable. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it is. It's just that stuff takes us a long time to do. Yeah. And yeah. we're in relatively short supply, I think, right now. And so you couple all of those features together. And right. I think being a little more careful with the things that actually make it to the engineering work to be done list yep. is a worthwhile thing. Yeah. So one, one last topic while we're circling around all things empathy and communication and planning is retro. Yes. What do you think about retro? Do you have feelings on that topic as well? I do have feelings on retro. Uh, I'm a fan. I am a fan of retros. Uh, every now and then I'll meet somebody that is not a fan of retros, and I love to understand why, just since I am a fan of them. For those uh, that maybe use retro or haven't done it before, a retro is essentially where your team gets together in a room. Hopefully it's a reoccurring meeting that you have at the end of each sprint, and you have the opportunity to reflect the format that I'm accustomed to that I think most people at ThoughtBot follow is that you go through each person and you ask what went well, you ask about concerns, and you go all the way around the room. 
And then as you're going all the way around the room, you can always sort of upvote something someone else has said because someone's taking notes and it's in a visible place. So you can sort of like, oh, I'd like to upvote something that Chris said or I'd like to upvote a concern that Chris brought up. I do think there's always this there's this very interesting moment in a retro for me where it's like, okay, this is where we win or we're about to like lose the meeting. And it's usually when like that first concern drops on the table. It's it may be the first person, it may not, but it's sort of like in like an old Western like movie where like this gunslinger sort of like walks into the bar <laughs> and everybody pauses and sort of looks and they and they're evaluating what to do. There's that moment where everybody can sort of just like tip their hat, sort of acknowledge like, okay, this is it, we have a thing, and move on with the meeting. And then there's also the scenario where someone's like, okay, well, let's confront this and let's handle it right now. And I've seen both play out. And to me, it's really important when we wait till the end to address concerns, just because if you tackle that concern right away, it's going to probably derail the rest of the meeting. So before you go on, I actually want to highlight that aspect right there, just to make sure everyone's clear on what you mean. The retro style that we do, very stripped down, it's roughly what you said, one lap around the room for what went well. And that's really just to get everyone talking and Mm -hmm. to bring a positive note to things. It's good to celebrate wins and have those positive moments. And then the meat of the meeting is the concerns or what didn't go well, although I really like concerns is the way to phrase that. And what you're highlighting here is that we very specifically go through each person and capture what they're saying, but we don't stop to talk about it in that moment. Right. And we kind of keep going through. People can add a plus ones, but the idea is that we're collecting everyone's thoughts. And then ideally, we then start the conversation. We dig into the things that have been most upvoted, Mm -hmm. um, for to use that term. Mm -hmm. It's actually, uh, there's a weird corollary right now. Matt Sumner, again, from the previous episode, this past week has started a meditation thing in the office. So yep. before stand-up, we have we do a quick 10-minute uh, headspace meditation. A bunch of us have been doing it. It's really nice. But like the core thing is allow yourself to have thoughts. It's not that we're not going to have thoughts, but then allow them to move on. And so in that yeah. moment, like not digging into the concerns in the right. exact moment, but saying, we're going to voice it. We're going to capture it. We'll come back to it. Yeah. There's almost a meditative quality to that. It's probably a friendlier version than my gunslinger version, but you know. <laughs> we'll I go, love, we'll let's, go with let's the, get both the of them. It's, again, it's that intersection point between the two things that we said. But then I think the conversation that happens after that, the let's dig into the concerns mm-hmm. and talk about it is so valuable. So you, like the taking a step back from the work and thinking not of the work, but about the work is so important. And again, I I similarly run into folks who don't like retro or have had mediocre is more often like most people don't hate retro. They're just like, I don't get any value out of it. Yeah, it doesn't feel productive. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a big reason that it doesn't feel productive. And I understand like it's hard when someone brings up a concern, like it's going to like evoke emotions in us. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's because we really relate to that concern that they've brought up and we felt that same pain. Or maybe it's making us feel like, oh, like I know how to fix this and I want to talk about it and let's dig into it. But as soon as you give that concern the floor, you're going to stop moving around to collect everybody else's thoughts first. And you'll hone in on that one. But you might miss the opportunity to also hear the other concerns and Mm -hmm. realize that you spent all your time on one concern when maybe there is a higher priority concern that was Mm -hmm. worth talking about. And I think that's why some people might feel a retro is unproductive, because then as soon as that happens, you don't feel like there's as much value from that meeting just because it felt less orderly at that point. And I found that sticking with that format, waiting till the end, till you have your concerns, sort of acknowledging them, and then choosing the ones that you would like to try to tackle in that meeting leads to a more productive meeting. Yep. 
I think the other aspect that I think is critically important is that something happens as a result of retro. Because if it's just a gripe session and it's just everyone complaining, yeah. and then each week or two weeks you get back together and you complain about the same things, it's going to go stale. And I certainly understand that not being a productive thing. I would too. But I think, again, very minimal structure. But we at the end, we write up the action items. We try and assign them to people. We revisit those in the next retro to make sure they got done. Mm -hmm. So we make sure that we have accountability and follow-up and that we're actually using the retro as a way to enact change as opposed to just a place to complain about things or to celebrate things. But, Absolutely, yeah. But it, it has to be more. Yeah. It has to produce change or else I would agree that retro without change is not worthwhile. Yeah, then it does feel like an unhealthy gripe session where people are getting together. And seeing the things that you've accomplished from the previous retro is helpful as well. So that way, mm -hmm. if you said, hey, we're going to change this process, we've all agreed to it, let's give it a sprint, see how it goes, then that way. I know like one small thing that we did in a retro that helped out a lot is we were talking about sort of PR reviews and making sure that PRs were getting enough attention. And so one thing we decided to try from the outcome of that retro was in stand-up, if anybody felt their PR hadn't gotten eyes or they just needed to make sure that people knew it was there and ready for review, was to bring it up as mm -hmm. part of their stand-up to say, hey, like, I need this. Would someone please volunteer? And then we'd actually get someone to raise their hand and say, I, I volunteer. Like, I'll, I'll look at your PR. So that way you have some ownership there. Yep. I love those little wins that can come out and like that continuous progression that getting a little bit better each time, making mm -hmm. sure that we have a space to talk about these things. Mm -hmm. One of the phenomenons that I notice and that I find most interesting about retro is you go around the room, you do all the positives, and then you go around the room and you capture all the concerns and you feel mm -hmm. like you got them all. And then somewhere in the middle of the conversation, someone's like, oh, wait, I actually, I have another one. Yeah. And it's the nature of the conversation helps bring to mind those things that would have just been ignored otherwise because they're not right. top of mind, but they right. are perhaps important. Like they're not the most painful thing, but they're that little thing that's been broken for a long time. Yeah. And when the one person says it and everyone else, actually, yeah, that has been a problem for me. Right. Like logging into the app with the current client <laughs> is one that has come up a few times, but it always comes up at the end of retro. Hmm. Because it's not it's like an afterthought. It's not a deeply painful thing. It's hmm. just a little bit painful. Okay. But it's a little bit painful a bunch of times and to everyone. Yeah. And it keeps being said. And so that's the one that has now been elevated to be like a primary concern. We should deal with this one. We got to fix it because there is a cost to this. Without the space of retro, without the room to have that conversation, mm -hmm. to take a step back from the work and to think at a higher level about the work, it would not have been raised most likely. Yeah. Or it was it'd be less likely to be raised. I won't say that it like definitively wouldn't. But sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm similar. I love retro. It's one of my favorite things. I think it's one of the better tools that we have, but much like story points, it's a tool. And I think, again, the question is like, what is the goal? What is the problem that we're trying to solve? And broadly, like, I think retro is the mechanism for change, for mm -hmm. identifying things that are less than ideal, and then ideally identifying ways to solve that, and then implementing those and having a feedback loop for all of that. So yeah, I like retro. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, I'm a big fan of it. I also think it's a great opportunity for you to sort of connect with like the rest of your teammates to find out like what celebrations they have or mm. positive things that are going for them on the team. Uh, it's also a good time to find out sort of like what pains they might be feeling that you're totally unaware of. I think it sort of like feeds into a lot of like team understanding. It's interesting now, uh, as we come to the end of this conversation, I worry that people will leave this thinking that ThoughtBot is a very process-heavy organization. Oh, yeah. <laughs> a very capital that. A, Agile. No. Uh, but actually, I think we've listed every single process thing that we do in this conversation. We've got stand-up, retro, yeah. planning. That's about it. <laughs> and we talked about them, and I think they're all important, but they're basically it. And yeah. I'm also a fan of like ad hoc meetings whenever necessary. Sure. But then having four other standing meetings throughout the week is always a thing that like mm -hmm. I don't want that. 
Yeah. I don't want the the scrum meeting and then the the double scrum meeting and the backlog burner and the other things and Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that can get exhausting for teams. And that is something that as consultants, we get to come in and help with. And that's Mm -hmm. one thing that I have enjoyed is because when you join a team and then it's important to me first to understand that team and sort of like what process they have, what's working for them, what they do and don't enjoy, and then slowly start to bring up like, Maybe, you know, we should consider, like, how fruitful is this meeting? Do we want to keep it? If it is fruitful, is it fruitful for everybody to be there? And just sort of, like, start nudging along and asking those questions. But first, I have to sort of, like, understand, like, their values and and what's working for them before I can start to see ways to make suggestions to help. Empathy. Yeah, it's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. It's a whole thing. incredibly important. It's a whole thing. Yes. Well, Steph, with that, I think we have covered many wonderful things here. Thank you so much for coming on and for talking with me about all of those various things. Yeah, thank you for having me. It's been a fun journey to sort of wind through these different conversations with you. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 172. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of our other episodes, you can leave us a rating or review on iTunes or share it on Twitter. If you have any feedback for this episode or any of the others, you can reach us at at underscore bikeshed on Twitter or hosts at bikeshed.fm via email. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you on the next Bike Shed. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.